0: You are listening to the National University Podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Kimberly King. Welcome to the National University Podcast, where we offer a holistic approach to student support, well-being, and success, the whole human education. We put passion into practice by offering accessible, achievable, higher education to lifelong learners. Today we're discussing Homeland Security and Emergency Management. According to the Department of Homeland Security, Emergency Management and Homeland Security are closely linked to professional fields that both address a complex set of challenges related to hazard risk reduction and resilience capacity promotion. Hazards can be natural, technological, or intentional human acts. A very interesting conversation coming up today. On today's episode, we're discussing homeland security and emergency management, and we're joined by Dr. Kenneth Christopher. Dr. Christopher is a professor and an academic program director for homeland security and emergency management at National University. He previously worked for 28 years in law enforcement, completing service as a captain within Miami-Dade Police Department and as chief of Seaport security enforcement of the Port of Miami, Florida. He's worked with the U.S. Maritime Administration at the Inter-American Port Security Training Program and has consulted on and developed educational programs in seaport security, criminal justice, and security administration, terrorism, and domestic preparedness, community safety, police management, and organizational behavior. We welcome him to the podcast. Dr. Christopher, how are you? What an impressive background. Thank you for your service.
2: Thank you. When you say it out loud like that, it's it's <laughs> it, it reminds me how long I've been doing stuff. So thank you very much.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, boy, and what a time to be in this and and teaching this. Which is, uh, I come from my family's all law enforcement, uh, so I really appreciate and see you. You know, I think it's great what you do, but it's also a good time to really showcase. Um, what you're doing and let other people know. So why don't you fill our audience a little bit about your mission and your work before we get to today's show?
2: Right. So, uh, well, I've been a full-time educator in higher ed uh, 17 years since I left uh, my previous career in law enforcement. So uh, I was very goal-oriented during my career in, in the police department. i I worked on my graduate degrees, my doctorate, and I started teaching part-time. And uh, the work I was doing, particularly in the last 10 years in Miami-Dade, was heavily involved in Homeland Security and Emergency Management. I mean, I was a police lieutenant, I was a captain, but I was also in charge of uh, security at the Port of Miami. Even before I started working for the Port of Miami, we had a police contingent out there. And then I was there before the September 2001 terrorist attacks and in the aftermath and in the several years later. So I was very involved in developing um, and implementing new regulations and oversight of security in the maritime and the port security uh, environment. And, um, you know, when I got to a point where I wanted to segue into higher ed and and go to full time, I gravitated towards uh, programs in criminal justice that uh, emphasized security, and particularly homeland security, and I wound up coming to National University because they did actually have two degree programs, a bachelor's and a master's in homeland security and emergency management. So I kind of fell into uh, what I'm doing now, really based on my career trajectory in the police department and just my interest in uh, teaching and sharing, you know, the information and the knowledge I developed over the years.
1: Good for you. Uh, And again, boy, what a relevant time to be doing this. I think, you know, we've, my husband always says the pendulum's going to swing back a little bit, but, you know, I think just really opening up what it is that policing, and it has changed a lot, but, um, you know, just really making sure that we are not just looking at it from one angle. Today, we're talking about Homeland Security and emergency management. So I guess my first question would be, what are the functions of private security and public police partnerships within Homeland Security?
2: Well, it's interesting because I would, you know, going back now 20 plus years to the 9-11 event was really a paradigm shifting um, period in our history, particularly in terms of the relationship between security and police. Um Private security has had this traditional idea of being just, you know, some night watchman jingling a set of keys, you know, shaking doors at the warehouse and so forth. And police were the ones that were called when they needed to make arrests and do investigations. When it became important for the critical infrastructure, airports, seaports, railroads, hospitals, you know, the concern about the threats in in those soft target environments Uh, really emphasized the need for police to work much more closely with the private security interests to make sure that there was at least collaboration in terms of the threat assessments and the needs for developing protective mechanisms in those environments. So so that's what's happened over the last 20 years, particularly as we've moved now into uh, cyber threats and threats to the information technology field. It really is important for the public sector, right, government, local government, state government, federal government to work much more closely with the private sector in protecting these assets and in dealing with these threats.
1: So, and that is true. Um, You know, I'm learning all about this as well as uh, now both of my children are also in law enforcement and again, the public and the private. What are the benefits of public sector police and private security partnerships?
2: well it's really about having a common perspective on the threat scenario and 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 what's coming down the pike um it's very you know sometimes it's very easy for a police department or just any government agency to go about its mission, you know whether it's the sanitation department the water department the libraries you kind of just do what you know what the government you know and and the playbook is about doing it but when you have to actually go into um you know, environments that are particularly, I mean, when you think about it, most critical infrastructure, if you think about transportation across the United States, airports, seaports, aviation, most of it is in the hands of the private sector. It, it's, it's business operations, right? So um, police just can't walk into an environment and think they can understand what the threat, you know, scenario is in that environment without talking or dealing with them. That's why advanced collaboration and networking with those, you know, if it's large employers or large facilities, it's important for law enforcement to have a good fix on what's going on in that environment. So that's why collaboration is very important.
1: It's a really good point. Um, I, and I grant and across the board, not just in law enforcement, but yeah, if your boots on the ground for sure. Uh, why might law enforcement agencies be reluctant to engage in partnerships with private security organizations? Oh well,
2: when there's a concern about the sharing of information that might be, um, you know, otherwise used by what I would call scoundrels and and the bad guy right out there, Um, it's not that there is a lack of trust. There's a concern that sharing of information, particularly information that may be sensitive, classified, you know, for law enforcement purposes only, if it's shared too widely in a non. Uh, law enforcement environment, it's possible that the information could be, you know, uh, used, you know, I- in advance of nefarious, you know, activities. So there's that kind of reluctance about that. Um, and that's that's one of the biggest challenges is, you know, developing that trust to be able to share information. Not, And it's really not just law enforcement. If you think about it, private organizations, I mean, they're in a competitive environment. If they share too much information outside the scope of their business, competitors can use that information as well to kind of, you know, compete with them at a higher level. You know, so they're, they're, it works on both sides for developing that trust.
1: Right. And actually, that leads right into my next question, and that is about how law enforcement agencies benefit private security organizations in protecting those assets and preventing crime.
2: Well, if you think about private security, I mean, it, it, you know, typically when we think about, you know, if you think about all the places you go where you see security, if you go to the football game, you go to a concert, you go to a hospital, you go wherever you see security people at, their main role is to basically deter and detect, right? There's a limitation in what they, what actions they can take. What can they do, right? So there's a lot of resistance, f- for example, from for letting private security actually apprehend people, like you know, if you think about shoplifting and people, you know, stealing from the local grocery store, uh, for liability purposes, most organizations don't really want their security people to challenge and apprehend and deter people. Well, you know, what you want is the, is law enforcement to be able to come in and do what traditional law enforcement does, which is the deterrence, the detection, the public, you know. Uh, keeping the public order, but also launching uh, the criminal investigations and the apprehensions that would bring people to justice. That's the legal authority that police have that private security does not. So that's why it's important to have these connectivities so that you know they they can lay the groundwork and have the you know the layout of what is going to happen you know in terms of bringing in police and in the security environment.
1: Right, you know, I'm just thinking because we're in California, and I just keep reading about all of these stores that are closing, and just the, um, you know, they it's an unbelievable crime um, rate that we're dealing with right now. So, um,
2: well, yeah, well, that's a challenge. I mean, that's going to be a challenge. Um, you know, uh, the the news, you, I mean, we all see the news reports of these uh, gangs of you know, thieves, breaking into stores, mobs, and so forth. Um, But I mean, it's like a lot of other problems that don't have a ready solution. It really takes that planning. I mean, I remember years ago in Miami, uh, tourists were being robbed uh, as they were getting their rental cars at the airport. Well, turns out they had the rental car agencies in a dark section across the street. It wasn't really in the airport. People were getting lost. But what happened was, law enforcement the state the car rental agencies the tourism interests got together and figured out a plan because it, you know people weren't coming to florida because they were being scared away so when there's a problem that's novel and new what it takes is you know the leadership of these organizations that have a vested interest to come together and think about a plan for dealing with it and i'm sure there's plans afoot now you know between the home depots of the world and the grocery stores and the Walgreens and local agencies and state agencies to come up with it because we can't, you know, we can't go on where everything is going to be robbed and stores are going to close. There has to be a response, and a lot of that comes with that working together. Yeah.
1: Well, and that, and I love that. Yeah, you really are talking about what is going on behind the scenes. What can we do? You know, and and so there's one thing about talking about it. There's the action, and I, as I said, the boots on the ground, and the, that that. Uh, collaboration, so those what strengths do those collaborations with the private sector bring to the mission of law enforcement organizations? Well,
2: a lot of times it could be something as you know just basic as technology. Uh, when you think about it, think of all the cameras that are out there that you know even even private residences now everybody has a camera outside their house, inside their house. but businesses now are I, I would say that there's a lot of opportunity. For uh government public sector interests to collaborate with private sector interests that are using this technology um in in smart ways right? I remember years ago at the port uh, when I was at the port of miami uh, and I was dealing a lot with the cruise lines right the passenger mm-hmm. cruise lines and what I found as a I was a police officer well I was a manager, but uh, you know working with the cruise lines and also the the shippers, the private container operators. They had lots of technology and smarts going on. So what, what I'm saying is, you know, don't just think just because, you know, the police are there, they know all, everything that's going on in terms of technology and how it's used. Private sector has a lot of things to bring to the problem. And a lot of times it's really just about sharing the, the knowledge and also collaborating in ways to leverage the technology to help each other, you know, accomplish what they want to.
1: And again, another great point that we just don't necessarily really think about. But yeah, they've been the ones that I've been dealing with. They know the layout. They know, um, you know, who's coming in and where. Is, where it's the yeah, they know everything. So it's great for those. What are the uh, the differences between a polite a police officer and a private security officer? And I guess one other thing are they are they armed or does it really just to kind of depend on uh, where these private security officers are?
2: It depends, you know, uh private security in the United States is not something that's regulated by the federal government. There are no standards. When you think about police officers in every state, and there's 50 states plus the territories, they all have a set of standards and requirements, training requirements that that officers have to go to go through before they're certified and allowed to go out on the street and enforce the law. Private sector security to a great extent is not regulated in that way. There are guidelines in certain, in most states, about you know licensing requirements and training is not is certainly not as robust that it is for law enforcement. So the difference is that private, I mean, private security really has no more power than the average citizen in terms of you know apprehending people and you can't bring some you can't arrest somebody you know and bring them to jail. But that's what the police do. So the the difference is that police have the authority to initiate and bring someone into the criminal justice system to initiate a prosecution um, where the, where private sector does not.
1: Okay. And that's another good point. I mean, they are sworn police officers that do go through the training. So yeah, that's, that's a big major difference there as well. Are there uh, regulations or laws governing how private security officers are trained, managed, or deployed? And you just said it's not necessarily um, yeah, it's just and it's a completely different um situation, but have there been changes made for the training for private security officers?
2: Oh, uh, well, since I would say again going back to the 9/11 incident really was a motivator in terms of um, recognizing the need to raise the uh, the proficiency level of security, particularly in the area of what we call critical infrastructure in the United States. You know, those those areas that are so important to the United States economy that, you know, their compromise could, you know, not only, you know, hurt people, kill people and cause injury, but they could also cause great economic damage. So what happened was, particularly at the federal level, the national government passed a number of laws, aviation, transportation, security, maritime transportation, and across the board in a number of different sectors where requirements for private security were Uh, reviewed, and in some cases, strengthened and enhanced, uh, to make them more aware of their responsibilities in protecting the assets, particularly when it comes to things like, you know, deal at airports, right? Uh, Maintaining the security of the restricted areas so that only the people authorized, you know, access can get through. And that's why it was important to reinforce those, the needs. So there's been improvements in training and requirements at the federal level but also many states and local jurisdictions particularly when you're protecting those assets you know recognizing that the private sector has a role to play and that it's important that they be trained and and equipped to the point they can to, you know, to get your question about yeah there are private security who are armed you know there's a certain level of training and proficiency involved and many uh, many cities and regions in the in the country particularly like in transit will employ private security who are armed and have duties to respond to incidents, you know, with that level of authority. Hmm.
1: So, I know you you have talked about it a little bit about just the post 9/11 environment and so what are some of the challenges facing organizations tasked with protecting soft targets in this new environment post 9/11?
2: Well, it's just knowing what the threats are, you know, and part of uh, the collaboration is having a, what we would call a common risk perspective, right? Or a common, you know, when you assess the risks or the threats associated with any activity or, or you know, or anything that's, that a business engages in, you know, for example, uh, I'll, I'll use the example of, say, a sports venue, you know, National Football League, major, you know, Major League Baseball, NBA, NHL you know, when you're operating a venue like that, what are the threats that you can anticipate, right? Part of the problem is, you know, police, local police, state police, FBI, Homeland Security, they're conducting threat assessments all the time. And whether or not those threats will impact a particular environment, whether it's a sports, hospitality, recreation, commercial, transportation environment, that information really has to be shared and relayed to those environments. That's why during something as big as a Super Bowl or a Grand yeah. Prix event, you know, there's a lot of collaboration and planning going on with these special events. And that's the kind of collaboration that we're talking about that really, you know, should be happening on a regular basis, not just at these big special events, but at the what we would call the soft targets, right? The shopping venues, the the festivals, the the, the different things where people gather, where access is really not that you know not that restricted. Those are the places where there's really a need to have this common threat perspective about what could be, you know, what what could come down the road, whether it's criminal, criminal behavior, terrorist behavior, or just safety, you know, just safety and security in terms of accidents and, and, and protecting against injuries and things like that.
1: I mean, all of this is just, it's interesting, again, relevant. And unfortunately, it's kind of the world that we're living in. I know, again, as I've been mentioning about my family, always with a head on a swivel, but also knowing where the exits are. um, And in light of the tragedy that just happened in Israel, I just think about the the concert venue. And I have heard a couple of interviews where, um, you know, the young people were running and running. Some of them got into a ditch and didn't survive. Uh, I know uh, one of the friends of the person that kept running, she said she ran for six hours uh, because she just kept hearing her parents voice in her head saying, when in fact something happens, run, don't, you know, go as far as you can, as fast as you can.
2: Yeah. Well, that, you know, the, um, you know, the sad thing is this most recent event is what we, you know, what's, and I didn't make this term up, it comes from a book by Nicholas Taleb, it's called The Black Swan. It's a black swan, something that doesn't happen very often in nature, right? It's something new and unusual and novel. And it's those novel events, right? 9-11 was such a a novel event. And who knew, if you knew on September 10th, 2001, that people were going to be able to break into the cockpit of four airplanes, right? They certainly wouldn't have had, you know, they would have had the protections there. It just wasn't something that, was on the threat horizon generally speaking. And and we have those from time to time. They just they occur, right? But once they yeah. do occur, you know, the perspective starts to change. That's what I'm talking about, having a common perspective. There may be people who knew, right? Oh my goodness, they're gonna, you know, there's gonna be an attack on a concert venue near the who knew? I don't know, right? But now mm-hmm. now it and that'll come out in the in the debrief. But the point is it, it kind of highlights the need for people who have information and intelligence on certain events and possible things that might happen to share that information so that, you know, they can plan in advance because it's, it's all about thinking about the threat and putting plans in place, you know, for future type of events. I mean, we don't have crystal balls, right? But we can use data and, and, and look at past events and, and think about what's going on, use the intelligence that comes in, you know, to start to plan and think about how do we protect better against future type similar events.
1: All good points. This is so interesting. We have to take a quick break, doctor. So hopefully you can just stay with us, but uh, we will be right back. Don't go away. And now back to our interview with National University's Dr. Kenneth Christopher, and we're discussing homeland security. And doctor, this has been really interesting. Thank you for your perspective on this Can you describe the terrorism threat environments?
0: And now a National University tip on getting started. For me personally, I knew I wanted to pursue uh, uh, an education due to what I wanted to do in, in life. But if I had to look back at somebody in my same position, I would tell them, for one, get rid of every reason why you can't go to school. Just deciding and then committing to it, the first place to start is, what do you enjoy? What do you care about? And if there's a degree that you, know, you can translate that into, then let's go after that. If you're unsure, talk to somebody who's currently in school. If you're serving with somebody who's going to school, talk to them about it and what their experience is like. The thing is, I truly believe as far as the general education, it's a perfect time to develop an understanding of what you want to do. It helps you figure out what you want to do. There's always going to be room to adjust, to make changes, and so looking at anybody who is sitting in my position and they're thinking about going to school, I would tell them, go down to that college office they can guide you and, and help you figure out what it is or ways that you can make it happen.
1: Associated with critical infrastructure and soft targets.
2: Yeah, well, you know, when you think about um, critical infrastructure, you know, as I kind of mentioned, has to do with, you know, those like transportation assets our, you know our banking systems, those things that are so important you know to the economy of the United States that attacks or compromises of their security will have a, a very significant impact on you know our, our economy, our livelihood, our, our government, and so forth. Soft targets, sometimes called soft targets, crowded places, are those uh, areas of a community where people congregate in large numbers where there's limited access, uh where restrictions to people coming and going are not typically easy to put together so for example you know if you think about large subway system new york subway system you know how many millions of people use the subway system you can't you can't actually you know screen everybody that gets into the new york subway you can put things in place to kind of protect the system as best you can but you can't actually you know restrict access so why terrorism or the threat of terrorism is so, um, you know, it, it is so critical in terms of these soft targets is that, you know, people who want to do bad things can access and infiltrate those areas. And not only that, they can do reconnaissance, they can do prior, you know, surveillance, they can they can look and see what, you know, what what kind of security exists, they can assess, you know, how easy it is to come and go to get out of the area. So that's why they are attractive targets. In terms of terrorists, or even, or even major criminal behavior, it's not just the terrorists, but even people who just want to commit, you know, regular old crime, as I call it.
1: Yeah, and what is regular anymore, huh? Oh my gosh, can you explain yeah. uh, the? Process? <laughs> it's unfortunate. Can you explain the process for developing situational awareness of that terrorism threat?
2: Well, the process is multifaceted. I mean, my my uh, my experience, particularly when I was I was the facility security officer at the Port of Miami in the aftermath, you know, in the years after uh, 9-11. So our um, our ability to develop what we would call situational awareness of the threat of terrorism really had to do with uh, working together with partners. Uh, For example, the U.S. Coast Guard, the federal agencies, Customs and Border Protection, state agencies that had worked there, but also the private sector security, the major cruise lines all had uh, robust security operations that would obviously, if they have organizations and employees and, and they know what's going on in their, you know, in their field, you kind of come together. And what we would do actually is have regular, I mean, regular weekly, sometimes more than weekly meetings with these groups to kind of try to put together what we think are the most um, likely threats. So whether it was suicide, terrorism, bomb threats, you know, uh, people who want to do harm, you know, that's what situational awareness is, is having a constant understanding updated as best you can all the time in terms of what the threat environment really is. So what do we want to protect against? Because we may only have a finite You know, amount of money, resources, police, security, equipment, technology to put, you know, to put on the target. But we don't want to put, you know, our assets all in one place if perhaps the threat is coming from somewhere else. So that's why having situational awareness, you know, of the environment is very important.
1: It, again, it's such a really relevant thing that we're talking about this. But and you kind of talked a little bit about what soft targets are earlier. But can you can you kind of expand on that and how difficult it is to protect them?
2: Yeah, well, um, it, it is because I mean, for example, a police department in, in any any medium sized city, right? I mean, I live in a city in in the western part of the United States, not the largest city by far. But if they want to put on a festival or a, um, you know, a large concert, outdoor type concert where, you know, anybody can come, maybe it's a free event, you know, so they have to think about everything from access control to managing the traffic, coming in and out, getting people from their cars into the venue, back to the cars. So what you have to do really is think about, well, what do we need to control? Because they're not just, you know, you're not just trying to prevent you know you are obviously trying to prevent bad actors from entering the venue but you also have to enable people to get to and from the venue in their cars by walking by public transportation so a lot of that has to do with thinking about how an event or an operation is going to work so when you talk about soft target security it's really trying to have a very realistic picture of what your event or your environment is going to look like during this this planned you know, thing that happens, but more—I mean, more routinely than that. I mean, there are shopping centers all over the place. Uh, mm-hmm. Downtown districts have entertainment, hospitality. Collect people go. They go to restaurants. They go to cafes. They go to—you know—they come and go. I mean, protecting that environment really is about—you know—thinking about you're going to have large groups of people coming and going. The potential for something happening is is there. You know, parades, you name it, <laughs>
1: right? Yeah. So. Right. And I think as long as you're also, te- you know, really educating people, um, you know, you have students, students have family members, parents, kids, you know, as long as people are talking about that and just, again, really kind of knowing, um, that it's just not the same world that we used to live in, you know, and, and safety should be a conversation within your, Yeah,
2: I mean, listen, and it's, it's natural to be, you know, to, to be apprehensive. For example, if you, I mean, we've had them, right. We've had, uh, You know, uh, multiple mass shootings and things like movie theaters, right? Right. And uh, you know, I don't know. I I I even thought, well, do I really want to go to a movie theater? I mean, and it shouldn't be like that, right? So, you know, but just because you had one shooting in a movie theater, or you do have school shootings, does that mean that's where the next one is going to happen? No. That's why it's important to have situational awareness and an understanding of threat in multiple types of environments, right now. can't put cop on every corner or police or security everywhere. But you have to kind of think about what are the most likely threats. And that's what we do in, in threat assessment. We look at you look at things like the threat. So whether it's, you know, people armed with guns, that's a threat, right? And it's about the vulnerabilities of the environment. So it's an open system, right? People can come and go. That's a weakness. That's vulnerability, right? And the other thing is likelihood, probability. What what are you know, what's the poss- what's the likelihood that that's going to happen? Sometimes that is a function of like looking at past events, what other groups are doing, you know, around the world, trying to assess that information to see whether or not it makes sense to change your planning or your security posture based on what's going on in the past. But, you know, some of it is science and some of it is art. You know, it's really thinking about. And again, it's, it's managing your assets and planning in advance. Um to the best of your ability to, to make, to make the venue as safe as, as, as practical.
1: You know, and I just was even recalling, I worked for the airlines years ago and I remember flying into Germany, I believe Um, this was before nine 11. And I just was really kind of taken back by the you know, AK forty, the the guns, like just you saw that security presence as soon as you landed, um, and it was again before nine eleven, and now um, we are talking about this because of nine eleven. As you said, it's just really changed the way the United States has shown up, and thank goodness, but uh, again, a, a whole different world. And I think Europe, you know, had been dealing with that prior to when it really hit the U.S. Um, at least in a visible. Yeah, well,
2: I mean. Uh- you know i remember hijackings and airport incursions in europe in the 70s and yeah. pretty pretty serious and deadly events i remember the rome airport had a uh, had a major you know uh, armed people coming in shooting up the, the terminal so yeah uh, so and what happens with that is obviously they change the security posture and it it looked different than what we were doing in the united but- states but even what we're doing in the united states now is very different than pre-911. In fact, I was just reading an article, uh, the history of airport security over the last 30 years. I don't know if you remember. I mean, you could literally just, without a boarding pass, you know, go through kind of a rudimentary metal detector, right? And, you know, go to the gate.
1: Yeah. Right? Can't happen. Yeah. Run down and be like, oh yeah, the flight leaves in five minutes, let's get on there. That would never happen anymore.
2: Yeah. Right. So, so that's what happens. I mean, the posture changes based on well now you know you couldn't do that and and so you know and hopefully the the mechanisms and the posture we have in place at airports is doing the job i mean so far yeah. it seems to be doing we haven't had a major you know aviation related terrorist event since nine right. eleven but you know, who knows i mean the technology is always evolving, and the bad the bad guys are not you know the the nine eleven people don't get me wrong i'm not I'm not you know saying they were great, certainly not great, but they were smart. I mean, they used their knowledge, skills. They actually operated, I mean, a whole training regimen and they managed it. I mean, and that was something we didn't see coming down the road, right? It was, we didn't see the sophistication of that operation. So that the the mindset has changed now, obviously 20 plus years later, but who knows what people are thinking now, right? I mean, they're using there's skills out there people are taking advantage of, just like we take advantage of technology to protect ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. people who are, you know, uh, don't care about that are are going to use that same technology to try to overcome what we put in place. So you got to stay one step ahead as best you can.
1: Yeah, get into their brains, I guess, and that's what your training has done, and and um, you know just. Yeah, try to stay one step ahead.
2: Well, we used so, to do we used to do something the military does called red teaming. Red teaming is basically sending a sending a, a group uh, in to try to compromise the security on purpose, right? Yeah. And um, you know, you, what you do is you're looking for the holes, you're looking for the weak spots in your. Pre- so whether it's a security officer is not checking a credential, or somebody sleeping at their post, or things, or you know, even in the information security, somebody not really. People not using their passwords correctly, letting other people use the computer. I mean, that's part of, you know, building that security awareness. And again, it gets back to this whole idea of collaborating with law enforcement because they can cross train in different areas that they, you know, in terms of, you know, I might have experts in the police department that are very good at training people on information security. And the private sector might have people that are very good in training police on how to work more effectively in a business environment, so it, there's a lot of opportunities for this cross training and and uh, and encouraging these these uh, the ability to work together again uh, for a common purpose.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, some of the obstacles again, you kind of have touched on this, but to law enforcement private security partnerships. So you know we talked about challenges. Are there are there any other obstacles that you see with these partnerships?
2: Uh- I think the biggest obstacle really is not having is, you know, leaders, managers, policymakers not having the foresight to to create these for and formalize these partnerships. Well, you know, I, 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 I mean, we when I teach these courses, I say I say students, why do we need to have partnership? What's a partnership between police and security? And. You know, sometimes I get students, they think, oh, yeah, well, we're going to work together. Well, what does it actually mean? How do you operationalize that? Mm-hmm. And really, the, the way it is done is you have to have leaders, it, stakeholders who are, you know, invested in the mission of safety and security at a particular venue or an environment, soft target, critical infrastructure, to really take the, the next step. The next step is to get the get leaders from these groups together to formalize. A collaborative, you know, partnership or an engagement, memorandums of understanding. You sit down, you think about, well, what what does this group have to offer? What what does this group have to offer? Let's put it down in writing and let's commit resources. Right, And that's the other thing. Is right. now, you know, let's put money up if we have to. Let's fund it. And uh, I mean, the best model is, you know, I go, I always go back to this, you know, any any major football game in the United States, any NFL, you go there are police on site this you know i used to i used to do this myself i used to work miami dolphin games oh, well. as a police officer we had a couple of hundred officers working every game but we worked in partnership with the stadium with the venue with the uh, the ushers and the ticket takers and you know and the traffic people you had to work collaboratively but that didn't just happen it had to be planned in advance there had to be contracts in place there had to be memorandums of understanding Here's what security does. Here's what police do. Here's what the traffic people do. Here's when they're going to do it, and that's what needs to happen. That that's the kind of, um, you know, step that needs to be taken. That maybe you know some organizations aren't taking because it takes it takes resolve, leadership, and and momentum to make that happen.
1: Right, and that's I mean, even when my son was uh, training and he was going through the academy. Uh, to become a police officer i think one of the things that was so important were the scenarios that he you know that's that was a huge part of his training and not that you're going to know every scenario but you have to be ready to face it and again that comes in that planning and um, i think we could use that in our everyday lives too by the way uh
2: yeah because you'll do and you'll do in real life what you do in training that's one thing i learned you know many many years ago in the police academy you know, whether it's firing a weapon or defensive tactics or even how you speak with people, you train on it. You know, here's the best practice. Here's what we want you to do. Right. Here's the way here. Generally speaking, is is the way results get done. And when right. you go out in the field, the expectation is you'll use what you learned in training and you will. You will do exactly how you're trained to do it. So that's, and exactly. that's it's not just training. Yeah, And you do you can do that between police and security you know, working those scenarios, I mean, and we actually did that Port of Miami, we would, we would have classes on security awareness, employee security awareness. So not just security, not just the security people, but just the people that worked, you know, in the terminals and in the venues, get them in a room with the police, with security, and start talking about the threats and the issues and why it's so important not to let people, if you got a secure door with a, you know, with a card reader, not to hold the door for the person behind you. There's a reason for that, and try to and talk those things out. Because then you take your your then your employees are much more well invested in the security of of, of the site.
1: Yeah, right. Good point. Yeah. So the training, it's in the training and then the planning and the and that leadership. How, um, how can police leaders develop a trusting environment for collaborating with private security organizations? Well,
2: just. You know, in terms of encouraging the relationship building and the networking, yeah. um, w- w- you know, like I said, the examples I have is uh, and I used to facilitate these meetings. Uh, we used to have these, um, uh, for lack of a better term, town hall meetings, you know, because after, like I said, 9-11, the federal laws came out, more restrictions, stricter access controls, credentialing, things like that employees and people normally who were used to normally coming in and out without any problem, right? Oh, well, I can't get, you know, I got business, I got work to do, the boss and all of that. Well, the, what you do is you create a venue, an environment or a setting where you let people come in and talk about their frustrations. But at the same time, what you do is you you encourage them to understand why we're doing things. It's really a communication, uh, you know, operation. So leaders. You know, whether, you know, police officers are resistant or they don't want to share intelligence, you have to get them in a room with their like minded. I mean, we're all in the same. I mean, we're all rowing in the same direction, but sometimes we're in different boats. Right. Mm -hmm. So the idea is to get everybody rowing in the same direction, you know, with the same mission plan, with the same common perspective of what we're trying to accomplish. That is a function of leadership. So building and, and that trust building really comes down to getting people together on a regular basis, whether it's a task force, um, a a community group, HOAs, meeting, community policing, is another aspect of, you know, working with the stakeholders and communities, faith-based organizations, businesses, thinking, you know, straightforward. I mean, school shootings are a great example in terms of why it's important for police to work with the school systems to understand. Because if you're going to have cops showing up at a school and they don't even know what the inside of the school looks like, They're not going to be very effective. Right. That's why that advanced planning. So it's important to get that build out, build those trusting relationships. That's leadership's role.
1: Yeah. And I love that you said it's leadership. I mean, for so long, we've heard even egos with different organizations become a problem as well. But if you're all talking and you have the same, um, you know, like mind, you want to see good things. As the end all, you know, the end all be all. Yeah, I, I think
2: a lot of that, I, I, like I said, nine eleven was a paradigm shifter. You know, there used to be this kind of, I don't know if it was legend or real. I never really experienced it. Here's federal authorities, here's local police, and there was this animosity. I never really experienced that, that but I'll tell you, after nine eleven, the Department of Homeland Security, the federal agency, right, really was a conglomeration of all these 22 different organizations, Coast Guard, Customs. Uh, immigration enforcement—they all came together. It, it, initially, there was a lot of walls there, but over the last 20, 25 years, a lot of those walls have broken down because we all realize we're all in the same—we're all we're in the all same, same boat. Right. So the collaboration, between, particularly local, state, and federal levels in government, has gotten way better, and I don't think you see much of that animosity or that—you know—that that silo building that really was not very efficient.
1: Right. Good. Uh, that's good to know um and so what are some of the essential components of successful public private partnerships and i know you've been talking about how important those components with leadership but what are there any other um components that you can talk about
2: what you mean the outcomes the outcomes of of collaboration really are uh finite and, and plans that can be shared uh and maybe modeled and reused in other environments so that's that's one good thing there are a number of, uh, um, and a, I don't, I don't want to get into the name of it, but I, I'm thinking of like there are, uh, there were programs put together after 9/11 that had to do with transit security, right? Bus security, rail security. A lot of that had to do with uh, the the agents of of railroads working with local, state law enforcement to improve security because that's basically another kind of soft target, right? And mm-hmm. so. What you can do with something like that is look at how effective it was, or if it wasn't effective, how it could be made, you know, how it could be made to work in other environments, right? And use those models. So really the outcome of a collaboration is putting something that might work, you know, together where it can be shared more widely. And that's what happens when we go, you know, we go to conferences, we go to seminars, symposia, A lot of the ones I've been going through, you know, particularly over the last few years and a lot of the emphasis has been in cybersecurity is sharing knowledge and awareness of of things that work and maybe some things that didn't work that, you know, you don't want to be doing that because they don't work. So it's really about this knowledge sharing. Um, And that's what, you know, we do at these conferences and things. We share research. Uh, We think about, you know, we have speakers come in to talk about how they, for example, managed after. Uh, a big tornado event or a hurricane event. And they share that knowledge with other like minded professionals so that they can go back and think about applying those things. So, really, it's about collaborating so that you can share the knowledge more widely, you know, in, in maybe a different venue or in a different industry or in a different uh, kind of uh, uh, event or planning of some, of some kind.
1: And that, again, it's so great to be able to collaborate and, you know, some things we don't see ahead of time, um, but just really opening up those, uh, those you know, conversations. How might uh, law enforcement and private security organizations formalize a partnership for crime prevention?
2: Well, uh, a, a, something as simple as putting together a, a community group, you know, in a, in a you know, I mean, think about like local chambers of commerce, you know, uh, business interests. They come together, you know, in in a town or a community or in a small city or in a large city, and they're really there to advance the interests of of that business community, right? So they might have programs to clean up downtown or, you know, uh, try to manage the unsheltered population better, things like that. The same thing can be done in terms of crime prevention and thinking about threats of terrorism or, you know, uh, mass attacks and things like that. It really is about uh, working together. You know, it sounds kind of cliche. You must work together. And, you know, but that's what it is. It's forming organizations. So whether it's a task force, a committee, um, a focus group, getting people like homeowner associations, right, to to think about you know, if you're having, uh, you know, if, if crimes, uh, burglary and property crime is going up in a certain community or in a subdivision, right, it's important to, you know, contact local police and get someone in who can help the community try to help themselves. I mean, that was kind of the basis of, it. a lot of us are familiar with Crime Watch, crime prevention programs. But that same model works in terms of thinking about protecting, you know, protecting in the school environment or protecting in the recreation industry or in a hospitality setting, right? Uh, Because that's where you have, anytime people come together, there's a potential for, you know, uh, for, for criminal behavior to occur. And if it's happening, like in a hotel district, uh, you know, San Diego, right, the gas lamp, I'm sure that, you know, the business interests there, you know, will come together and think about, well, we, you know, we can't, we got the golden cow here. We can't, let that, we can't let that die because there's some scoundrels out here scaring right. people off. So, so that's when, you know, local law enforcement, community policing, engagement with the business in interests have to kind of come together if it's just, you know, it could be one problem or it could be a series of problems. But it's really about developing that ongoing relationship to formalize uh, how we're going to deal with a problem. Now, that ain't easy because there's lots of problems out there, right? One problem in one section of town, if you're just going to start throwing assets over there and money, you know, it just might take away from another. So the challenge for the leadership is to think about the equity, right, of whatever solutions you're coming up with. Because you can't disadvantage one group, you know, just to, you know, to benefit another. and right. Because it, even, if, even if you don't do it, that might be the perception in a community, you know.
1: Again, things that we don't necessarily always think about, but that is so true, that, and it is that perception. But wow, this is great information, and I really enjoyed speaking to you, and uh, hopefully we can have you back on in the future. But thank you for sharing your knowledge today, Doctor. And if you want more information, you can visit National University's website at nu.edu. And again, thank you so much for your time and your information.
2: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you in the audience, and um, I look forward to any further collaborations. And I invite anybody who's interested in our programs to uh, look me up. I'm on the website. I'm easy to find and get a hold of me. I'm I'm happy to talk to anybody who might be interested in in our programs and the university.
1: Perfect. Thank you. And thank you for uh, making a difference. You've been listening to the National University Podcast. For updates on future or past guests, visit us at nu.edu. You can also follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.